You're listening to a podcast from Bristol Epilepsy Support Group. For further information about our podcasts, go online to our website, www.bristolepilepsy.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter. We are at Bristol Epilepsy. Can I just um, introduce uh, Dr. Faulkner, who is one of our consultant neurologists from French A, and has very kindly come along to give us a talk about women and epilepsy. So, for all the fellows, you can all go to sleep for half an hour. <laughs> okay, so over to you, Hans. Thank you. So, um, thank you for inviting me. Um, so, it's always a bit of a poison talent to come and talk to a group of invariably at least 50% women about why their hormones make life difficult. So I'm hoping none of you will take any of it personally and much of it with a pinch of salt. Um, so uh, at, at the heart of everything that I'll talk about in the next bit is women's hormones and why they change the interaction with lots of things. Um, so I'll talk about that, I'll talk about fertility, contraception, pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, and lastly menopause and HRT. So it's a, it's a full life cycle, if you will. Um, it's a little bit disparate when you talk about epilepsy and, and women's issues, because it's a chunk of slightly unrelated things, but with a common theme. So when you give these talks, you always feel like you're jumping around a little bit. Um, just so as we're clear, epilepsy is still more common in men. Um, and interestingly though, because of all the wonderful bad behaviour that women now take part in, you're catching up fast. So uh, head injury, alcohol, cerebrovascular disease, all those things that used to be predominantly or more commonly male problems. Um, the risk of intractability and remission are however completely the same. So epilepsy seems to be the same condition in men and women. Um, and I suspect this will just normalise over the next few decades. So it's, you know, the, the male and female differences will disappear. I took this slide out of something else I've written before, and there are about a hundred different reasons why oestrogens uh, are uh, uh, pro-epileptic and uh, progesterones are anti-epileptic. Uh, numerous things, predominantly to do with how the, the inhibitory neurotransmitters in the brain work, uh, the GABA receptors, um, and the excitatory uh, neurotransmitters. But it's quite interesting that in different parts, if you take sort of um, um, uh, lab preps uh, in vitro, you can show that direct cortical, cortical excitability and things like that are changed by the, the different hormones of the, of the female uh, sex cycle. So um, I think that's probably quite an important um, thing to... Uh, thing to have as your basis of understanding women and epilepsy. And, uh, of course, as you'd expect, the ovarian steroids, the oestrogens and the progesterones, increase um, uh, at menage when, when women start having their periods. And that's probably responsible for a, a large proportion of why uh, epilepsy emerges in the, in the late teenage years, in women at least. So... Uh, I'm not going to spend any great time looking at this because I haven't looked at this since medical school and I'd only embarrass myself if I started talking about it to any great extent. Suffice to say, suffice to say, oestrogen increases here with the grey line, progesterone increases here in the luteal phase with the, um, uh, prior to uh, the menstrual period. So you have these distinct, uh, distinct parts of the menstrual cycle um, with different uh, proportions of um, predominance of um, <coughs> progesterones and oestrogens. Okay? Which Does that mean that women, sorry, yeah. women, women are more susceptible to epileptic attacks? Well, this is the early. This is this very slide. Cycle. You're getting ahead of us here. Just sorry. I do that regularly. <laughs> now, catamenial epilepsy is, is this notion that. Some women have seizures which are predominant in certain parts of their menstrual cycle. If you uh, audit a group of women and ask them about their menstrual cycle and whether it affects their epilepsy, I think the figure is, is 80, but it's about 100 in the clinic, to be perfectly honest. You, you're lucky to find a woman who says menstrual cycle has nothing to do with their um, uh, seizures. True ketaminal epilepsy requires it's reproducible, it's consistent, and the seizures come at that point in the menstrual cycle. In other words, it's precipitated by the menstrual cycle and at no other time. Yeah, so that's a very precise definition 
of that kind of epilepsy which is provoked by the menstrual cycle. And that's actually quite rare, to be honest. And I can't think I have more than half a dozen people who could, who could say that as a, a definite entity. But some women do describe a very menstrual pattern. It's very common indeed. Okay, so that, that's the first part, which is to say that epilepsy can be, uh, or that seizures can be precipitated by changes in the menstrual cycle. Okay, so that's important when you think about other aspects of um, uh, women and epilepsy. See, darting around to the next area, which is uh, infertility. So, infertility is slightly higher in epilepsy, and the truth is we don't have complete understanding of why that is. So, a part of it seems to be due to the uh, epilepsy itself. So, uh, for example, if you look at the hormone release after right and left temporal lobe seizures, they're slightly different. Um, equally, we know that temporal lobe activity changes the hypothalamic activity and can lead to hormone releases. So there's very strong connections between the temporal lobes um, and the hormone axes within the brain that control the hormone levels that your body experiences. Um, so we know that, and those hormones are of course central to fertility. So the first part is, is seizures. And then there's the second part, which I'm sure lots of you have read about at some point, um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And this is where it starts to get a little bit complicated. Um, do, do, but do you know what polycystic ovarian syndrome is? I mean, uh, I've kind of written it up here, but um, it's not just multiple cysts in the ovaries, although that's one of the criteria. So it, polycystic ovarian syndrome is, is, is a syndrome, as the name suggests. So it's the combination of an altered menstrual cycle with anovulation, so people don't produce the eggs, um, uh, polycystic ovaries on scanning, but a relative excess of uh, androgenic hormones, so that's the sort of testosterone-based hormones, which can lead to sort of hirsutism, um, uh, increased hairiness and acne, and it's associated with um, what's called the metabolic syndrome, the insulin resistance, which is linked to diabetes and hypertension and those kind of things, and high cholesterol and, and weight gain. So it's this, it's this whole syndrome, and it's not just a, a single entity, but the anovulation start, part of it, of course, leads to uh, infertility. So the ways these are diagnosed are either that you have an incidental finding of, of lots of cysts on the ovaries, or you present with uh, infertility, um, and it's meant to be one of the commonest causes of infertility, or you present with a relatively young person with problems such as uh, type 2 diabetes or high cholesterol as part of that syndrome. Um, and the problem is that PCOS is quite common in people with epilepsy. Now, when they've studied this in idiopathic generalised epilepsy, so the primary generalised epilepsy, it's been found in about 40% on average in the studies. Now, the problem there is that we know that sodium valproate, epilim, um, uh, is implicated in this. The problem is we don't know whether it's the kind of epilepsy that's related to it, we don't know whether it's the drug that causes it, we don't know if it's nothing to do with the other, either of those things, but we do know we also see it at a higher level in temporal lobe epilepsy, which implies it's not as simple as valproate, because you can't get that many people with temporal lobe epilepsy on valproate. The good news is that if sodium valproate is the cause of the polycystic ovarian syndrome, if you stop the valproate, it goes away, it gets better. Uh, that's been shown numerous times. So there's a lot of ambiguity in that, but probably a lot of the infertility in epilepsy is caused by this syndrome in one form or another. Does that make sense? So um, I guess the next bit to um, the next bit to talk about is. Uh, the opposite of infertility, and that's contraception. There are an awful lot of facts in, in, in a talk like this. It's, um, you know, this is 20 PhDs uh, rolled into a, a little talk. So um, I, I will try not to, if I'm giving you too many facts, just tell me. But at the same time, there are, there are certain concepts in contraception that are worth bearing in mind. And the first key one is the difference between the enzyme-inducing anti-epileptic drugs and the non-enzyme-inducing ones, which uh, have very different effects. So if, if the drugs like carbamazepine, phenytoin are used, then they have effects on some of the enzymes in the liver, which, uh, which are called the uh, cytochrome P450 enzymes, and you induce those enzymes with those drugs, and that has effects 
on what those enzymes normally do in the liver and they speed up the reactions that those enzymes would normally be doing. Um, and one of the things they do is they process so uh, they process some of the aspects of the combined oral contraceptive pill. So we know that if people are on these drugs and you just use a normal dose of the combined oral contraceptive pill, for every 100 couples using this as their contraception, you'll have about six babies a year. So that isn't an ideal form of contraception. Um, but essentially all it is is that it's being metabolised more quickly. So uh, what people typically recommend as the simplest way to do it is to double dose. Um, and so you can, you can be more specific and say that uh, 50 micrograms um, of the uh, oestrogen component would be high enough, but generally speaking, people double dose. So if you're on those drugs, then you could argue that the combined oral contraceptive pill isn't the best form of contraception, but it's a very convenient form of contraception, and lots of women would rather use that than any of the other forms. And as long as you're double dosing it, then that's um, probably the appropriate thing to do. The uh, other, um, the progesterone injectables are the other one that's very commonly considered. You do have to use them slightly more frequently, um, uh, but because they're metabolized in the blood rather than by the liver per se, they aren't affected by the cytochrome P450 to the same extent. So. So that's the first part of it. Um, and then the non-enzyme-inducing drugs, which is, tends to be the more modern ones because the drug companies have been very clever at making sure their drugs are less likely to interact with things. So you've got the levetiracetam, uh, some of the older ones like epilin, um, uh, lecosamide, for example, don't have any interactions with the hormone con uh, contraceptions. That's, that's a very attractive notion to young women. Uh, the last one that's slightly more complicated, along the, but the same theory, is about lamotrigine. So, um, and this is the reverse, basically, that the combined oral contraceptive pill increases the metabolism, so speeds up the metabolism of the lamotrigine and reduces the amount of lamotrigine the body is exposed to. So people who are on lamotrigine who start on the combined oral contraceptive pill slightly contentious, but in general we suggest a slight increase in the dose of lamotrigine. <coughs> to have the same anti-epileptic benefit. Normally only a relatively small increase. One of the things that when, um, when GSK launched Lamotrigine, one of their selling points was that it didn't interact with any of the contraceptives. And about, I'm going to say about 10 years later, they lived to regret that and they got sued a lot. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It does, it does, no, it does. <laughs> the truth is, though, there's actually no, although it does interact with the hormones, there's no evidence that that actually reduces the contraceptive efficacy. So it's a really interesting debate this, as to whether, I mean, I think they have, there have been some court cases relating to this, and I think they've settled them because it wasn't worth the bad publicity, but, um, but it's not actually clear that lamotrigine um, has... Um, uh, ever caused the failure of the combined oral contraceptive pill. I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting. Um, okay, so that's contraception. Does anyone have any specific questions about contraception? Because there's lots you could talk about it, but I think I'm just going to try and give the broad brushstrokes this evening. I'm um, saying there's kind of so much I could talk about here. Um, so the next thing here is sort of inheritance. I think when you when you're talking about fertility and you're talking about uh, pregnancy, which we'll come on to in a little bit, uh, we ought to be talking about how we, um, how we talk to people in the clinic who are considering pregnancy. And one of the issues that people commonly want to ask or talk about is inheritance. And I guess the, the thing that many people are pleased to hear is that most epilepsy is not inherited. Um, so to give you the idea, you'd have to have between 50 and 100 children before you had a sizable chance of having a child with a pregnant onset epilepsy with one parent. I'm not advocating 50 or 100 children. <laughs> Idiopathic generalised epilepsy, in other words, the primary generalised epilepsies, are slightly more complicated. Because it depends at what age you developed your epilepsy. That's what seems to define the risk as well as what your family history is. So when we talk about these figures, I'm not sure that allows for the family where you look over the family tree and you can see 30 members 
have all had a very focal kind of epilepsy uh, and it's sort of also more dominant frontal lobe epilepsy or something. You can't account for that. That's a very different um, form of genetics. But when you take your uh, normal epilepsy that one sees in the clinic, um, then these stats are, are fairly accurate. So if, if a person, um, if a parent developed epilepsy over the age of 20, then the risk of it being seen in the offspring is very low. Below 3% seems to be the standard figure. But if you have a primary generalised epilepsy um, that's had an onset at a young age, sort of in the teenage years, then the risk is slightly higher. Um, probably, again, in the order of 10%, so still not, not high. And that depends on the number of members within the family. In other words, how strong is this gene that is being carried in the family? So the overall picture is that most epilepsy does not run strongly in families. There are exceptions to that. Yeah? Right, so the majority of the rest of this talk will really be about pregnancy because that's when it gets uh, interesting and complicated. Um, depending on which study you read, roughly speaking, the, the rule of thumb has always been a third of women uh, have more seizures in pregnancy, a third of women stay the same, and a third of women have fewer seizures in pregnancy. The best predictor is the previous nine months which is kind of logical, really. If you've been seizure-free for nine months, the odds of having a seizure in the next nine months is relatively low. Now, the thing in pregnancy is, it's very complicated. Firstly, you've got more progesterone floating around, so theoretically that ought to be, that ought to prevent seizures happening. So theoretically, women should have fewer seizures in pregnancy. But as I said before, women can be complicated. Um, and pregnancy can be complicated. <laughs> and, and I guess if this were a, um, a sort of an isolated preparation looking at pregnancy, then probably there'd be fewer seizures. But pregnancy is a time of great stress, sleep deprivation, discomfort, and, and those are all very important for whether people have seizures or not. And then the second part is that the drugs that are in a nice, stable equilibrium when people aren't pregnant certainly shift when they become pregnant. So you've got lots of factors here. You've got the hormones that change that ought to be protective. You've got the drugs that change that may not be protective. Um, and you've got the lifestyle factors that change during pregnancy. So on average, a third, a third, a third probably is about right. Um, but as I say, the best predictor is the nine months before. Uh, one of the things we get nervous about when we talk about pregnancy and risk of drugs and what have you and risk of seizures is that um, about four mothers or four pregnant women die a year in the UK to do with complications of epilepsy and one of the main factors seems to be that uh, people want to stop their medications understandably, you're developing your baby and um, you want to stop everything you possibly can, you're suddenly going to stop coffee and alcohol and smoking and you're going to behave well and go to bed early and all those things. And, um, and stopping your tablet seems like a perfectly sensible thing to do, except that it can be a risk for your epilepsy to go completely out of control and for that to be life-threatening. Um, but at the same time, we need to be clear with people that seizures in pregnancy probably aren't anywhere near as dangerous as people have historically thought. So I'll talk again in a minute about the Eurap registry when I talk about drugs in pregnancy. But in the Eurap pregnancy, there were 800 pregnancies which had completely uncontrolled seizures during the pregnancy, and they had one stillbirth. So the notion that, that uh, seizures in pregnancy are dangerous to the developing child probably has been oversold over the years. Um, and so probably the same balance in every other part of epilepsy management applies in, in pregnancy, um, that you want to look after the mother. And by looking after the mother, you will look after the developing baby. And that's the most important factor. So anyway, seizures in pregnancy, um, unless the mother becomes injured, then it's unlikely to be dangerous to the baby per se. Um, <coughs> probably most, uh, the part that we want to talk about most is, is drugs in pregnancy. 
Now, uh, I'll start from the beginning here, and I, I, I'm assuming that everyone in this room has thought about this or talked about this or knows a little about this. It's one of those issues that comes up over and over and over again. So forgive me if I'm telling you things you already know. <coughs> so, as a starting point, anti-epileptic drugs do appear to increase the risk of congenital malformations in pregnancy. Uh, and the most common abnormalities are neural tube defects, that's the failure of the development of the spinal cord, cleft lip and palate, failure of development of the, uh, the palate, cardiac uh, abnormalities, fingers and toe abnormalities, um, and then uh, genital urinary gastrointestinal abnormalities. Um, and these are studied around the world in numerous different databases. There's the American database, the British database, and the one that's tied to the Australian database, and the one that's tried to tie them all together, the Europe database. And the rate of congenital malformations isn't agreed in any given country in the world. They all argue about what a congenital malformation is, what the rate ought to be, how we compare one with the other. So it's a very complicated field. Um, but if we, if we take one at a time, so there's the UK Epilepsy and Pregnancy Register based out of um, Northern Ireland. And the first thing to bear in mind is that congenital malformations happen to lots and lots of women who don't have epilepsy. This is nothing unique to people with epilepsy. So, uh, if you want to major congenital malformations, depending on what that is defined as, is between 1 and 3%, depending on the study. So, pick about 2% as a, as a guess. Um, and the interesting thing is that if you look at the risk of women with epilepsy having babies who aren't on anti-epileptic drugs, the risk is already increased above the baseline population. Now, I think that data includes some people who have very, very bad epilepsy, some people who have um, neurological conditions of which epilepsy is only a part, and thus that figure is probably higher than is appropriate. But the first thing to understand is that Although drugs increase the risk of congenital malformations, they aren't the sole cause of it. Okay? Um, however, if we look at uh, this first registry, the UK registry, it, there are some important points here. And the first point is that you want to be on as fewer drugs as possible. So one drug is better than two drugs, is better than three drugs. So if someone's on three or four drugs for their epilepsy, then it's an additive risk of the congenital malformations. It's not just that one drug uh, if you're on drugs, then your your risk increases. It increases sequentially with the with the drugs you're on. So uh, one, so if we look here, uh, one drug 3.7 percent, greater than two drugs uh, up to six percent. The second thing that's very clear from this registry uh, is that not all drugs are equal. Um, so the one that we worry about the most is probably sodium valproate, uh, and the problem with sodium valproate is that it's a very good anti-epileptic drug and there are certain types of epilepsy that only seem to respond in some people to sodium valproate and so when you come back to this notion of having to look after the mother in order to look after the baby um, if that's the only drug that helps their seizures then some people uh, do end up having pregnancies on sodium valproate even though we'd like to avoid that if we can so the safest drugs appear to be carbamazepine, lamotrigine, levetiracetam uh, the most troublesome drugs seem to be sodium valproate, and if we take the baseline risk as being 2 to 3%, sodium valproate is, <clears throat> is uh, uh, associated with a risk of between 6 and 9%. And then there was this one study out of Liverpool which suggested that the offspring of people exposed, uh, the offspring exposed to sodium valproate had a higher rate of cognitive impairment as well. So, and that's something that needs an awful lot more work to clarify um, but and and also it it may well just be a, a there may be a lot of confounders in that so why were this population group on valproate was it because they weren't concerned about being on valproate they would, didn't know there were these issues about valproate and therefore perhaps it's uh, taking a group of people who were uh, either less educated or less aware of the issues or hadn't tried to reduce their dose or sort of mean there are lots of other factors that might be involved here. Um, <clears throat> the same bit of data comes out from the American uh, uh, registry. So this data was released um, uh, earlier on this year. So this is quite a neat study looking at, these are all monotherapy, so it gives you the number. So you've got um, uh, number of malformations, number on the drug, percentage, 
And what, what's very, very useful about this is, so we've got a much bigger number here on Kepril, Evatracetam, in this study group than we've had previously. So in the UK registry, we've had a couple of hundred monotherapies without any. And, it, and everyone knew that had to be wrong because it should have been 2% anyway. So everyone knew it was just a statistical error. Um, whereas this is another 450 patients, 11 of whom have had uh, congenital malformations, giving you a risk of about 2%, um, which is on a par with lamotrigine. So we're increasingly comfortable using this newer drug, uh, levetiracetam Kepra, in pregnancy. So it looks like it will be one of the safer drugs to use in the future. Now, 2.4% uh, is not nothing. It was the, the nothing, the naught percent that was previously um, uh, that was previously kind of reported from the UK registry. We always knew that was wrong. Um, but I think this is suggesting to us that it's not dissimilar to the rate of congenital malformations uh, uh, in the background population. So that's that's a, a good piece of data to have. Um, this this last bit here just does show that, uh, as I said before, Valparate is a very good drug, um, and so the rate of seizures was higher in the safer drug, Lamotrigine, as compared with the less safe drug, uh, Valparate. So that's complicated. The, the last bit of data comes from this URAP registry, which has been around for a while, but really only released data in the last year or so, and they've tied together the European, UK, Australian, Latin America data. So in fact the only people who haven't been involved, uh, I believe Africa doesn't have any uh, databases, I could be wrong about that, forgive me, but I don't know of any, and North America I think were just being difficult. Um, so everyone else clubbed together and has been producing really quite nice data. Um, and the important thing that came out of that was, uh, so we've talked about the fact that one drug better than two drugs better than three drugs better than four. Uh, we talked about some drugs being safer than others. But the final piece of data seems to be that it's a dose-dependent relationship. So if you're on 100 mils, that's safer than 200 mils, safer than 300, safer than 400. So it's a dose-dependent effect. And that data came out very clearly for the Europe data in the Europe database. Um, so that's the... Just, just, that's sort of a, a, a very kind of... Um, that's a much discussed area of women and epilepsy. So does anyone have any questions about that, which I've just tried to talk through? Because I, I appreciate it's one of those things that I spend a lot of time talking about in clinics, so it tends to be relatively something people are understandably concerned about. So if there are any questions, you can either ask me now or after. But um, <clears throat> the, the next thing to talk about specifically in terms of drugs in pregnancy is lamotrigine, which is... Uh, Possibly not as not as unique as we thought it was in terms of the levels of lamotrigine fall in pregnancy. So, and we know that there's, there's one study from the States, from New York, I think it was, where they showed that when the lamotrigine levels fell below 65%, then there were an increased rate of seizures. It wasn't a huge study, and an awful lot of practice has followed this relatively small study. Um, the interesting thing is that if you actually, following this, people started looking at other drugs, and certainly uh, phenytoin drops in pregnancy, possibly carbamazepine and levetiracetam levels drop in pregnancy, it's just nobody's really done the study to know whether that makes a difference, at what point do your, if you monitored levetiracetam levels, how far would they have to drop before your seizures worsen, so, you know, it's, it's just not, it's not clear whether, um, whether, uh, actually, we're doing all this work on lamotrigine and we should be doing this for everything. That's just at this point in history, we're not clear about that. Excuse me, sorry, just while I remember, mm. could you not, um, if a woman is planning to be pregnant, take her levels pre-pregnancy? With, with lamotrigine, we do. And with Kekra as well, the drugs that you're sort of ifing and um and about, and yeah. then do it. You know, so, yeah, no, no. Well, well, that's what we do with lamotrigine. At the moment, no one in the UK or even the States is uh, changing levels of uh, levotracetam, for example, on the basis of drug levels. And the, the problem is that 
we try our best to give people as lower levels as possible in pregnancy for understandable reasons and yet with lamotrigine we're in a position where we're increasing it in pregnancy and we kind of feel we're safe to do that because we have an evidence basis to say that the levels are dropping and those levels dropping are leading to seizures but if I were to start increasing people's um, I mean, what you're talking about is doing it preemptively, isn't it? Yeah, so, so we can stop the seizures. If it's by 25%, then increase the dose. <clears throat> but the point steady. is, at this point in history, I have no evidence to say that's the right thing to do. Now, if someone has seizures, then you can argue differently. You can, you can say, well, they were on this before, they're now having seizures, we need to do something, the appropriate thing to do is to increase it. It's just very hard for one to justify doing that preemptively in the absence of evidence that it's the right thing to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't disagree with you. I suspect you'll turn out to be right and I suspect that that's um, that the evidence will come over the next 10 years that we should be monitoring all these drugs and changing all their levels. Uh, you, you do drug levels, so if you can imagine there aren't that many levels that need to be done for something like levetiracetam per week in the whole of the UK, just the number of pregnancies, there aren't going to be that many. And these assays become phenomenally expensive when they're small numbers of runs. Uh, and so I suspect this will come to pass, um, but actually even doing the studies to prove it needs to be done will be phenomenally expensive. So it will be hundreds of thousands of pounds just to run a study because of the cost of the assays. So it's not something we could sort of just start doing Let's say in Bristol we wanted to start measuring the levels and see what would happen. I think it would, you know, would require a large funded study in order to do that. And I think someone was looking at it in the States where money is easier to come by, at least at the moment. Um, uh, but we're not there yet, basically. I hope that answers the question. So, uh, as you said, we do preemptive levels in lamotrigine and then we monitor preemptively and if the levels drop, we supplement. Um, so that's lamotrigine, which at the moment is a special case, but it may not be for long. Um, a couple of other areas of sort of pregnancy management. So uh, I'm going to skip through these. These are I'll come back. I'll talk about. Them. So I've got folic acid, vitamin, and vitamin K. Um, folic acid. Uh, low levels of folic acid have been associated with um, an increased rate of congenital malformation, particularly spina bifida. Uh, and every pregnant woman is advised to take supplement, supplementation of 0.4 to 0.8 milligrams. Now, the data in epilepsy is slightly less clear, um, and it's not for want of studies. There have been quite a few studies looking at this. The, the original sort of study looking at high-risk pregnancies actually excluded epilepsy patients. This was the big MRC study. So although we say everyone should have folate, uh, everyone in, in epilepsy should have folic acid, the original study that said we should use folate excluded people with epilepsy. And the most recent study that looked into this that, that tried to compare groups that had had folate and hadn't didn't show any difference between groups that had folate and hadn't. Um, it's hard to believe that that's, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm trying to give you all the data here rather than show you the bits that help my argument, but um, the reality is that I recommend folic acid to uh, uh, everyone who's uh, planning a pregnancy who has epilepsy, particularly those on anti-epileptic drugs, uh, the argument being that the, some of the anti-epileptic drugs can increase the turnover of folate. Um, the evidence we have that that actually makes a difference is relatively slim, but it's still considered part of practice. Another slightly contentious area is vitamin K. So vitamin K is essential for producing clotting factors. Um, and there's a condition known as um, hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. So in, in the UK, all babies receive vitamin K at birth. Historically, women with epilepsy have been given vitamin K supplements in their pregnancy prior to birth. Um, and there's been several studies that have compared those two groups, and there doesn't seem to be a great deal of evidence for giving vitamin K in pregnancy. Um, some centres do, it really depends on the obstetric uh, uh, on the obstetric view to my knowledge they've stopped doing it in Bristol they don't, well they don't make the, um, the uh, tablet any longer you can't get it it's 
very different. Yeah, so I think you have to get it in from abroad. It has stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, the, the very big studies suggest it didn't make any difference. So as long, but it is essential to have the the babies to receive them between K. Um, so that's between K. So. Uh, Labour. Um, essentially, this uh, I've just copied this off our local um, antenatal protocol in Bristol. Um, so the odds on having a seizure during labour are are quite low, unless in that twenty four hour period you would have had seizures otherwise. So labour isn't protective against seizures, but at the same time it's actually relatively low risk of having a seizure in labour. It's the same statistic. You need to have 50 to 100 babies to um, guarantee having a seizure in, in your labour period. Um, but, the, but the factors that would precipitate seizures at any other time are those same ones that would precipitate in, in labour. So they are tiredness, uh, pain, sleep deprivation. So I haven't personally given birth to a child, but I, I understand it can hurt a bit. So I, I imagine some of those factors happen in childbirth. So, but I think the point of, of the obstetric plan ought to be to minimise those factors. Um, and that's why the, in, in the local plan in Bristol, the obstetricians will offer epidural early. Now that doesn't mean a, a woman will have an epidural, uh, it's just one of the options to be considered to reduce the amount of pain, tiredness, etc, um, etc. Et one of the, just, it's always worth saying to people, pepidine seems to change seizure thresholds and should be avoided in women with epilepsy, so that's just one of those factoids that's probably worth remembering. Most doctors do know that, but you never know. Um, and understandably, anti-epileptic drugs should be continued in labour. It, it's pretty common to, to see someone in the post-delivery period when they've had a seizure and suddenly they realise in that 24-hour period where they weren't perhaps completely in charge of what was going on because they were concentrating on other things that they've forgotten to take their anti-epileptic drugs. So it just needs to be part of the plan. Um, and I guess understandably if there are problems that that would be a reason for expediting So, um, next stage after delivery, uh, breastfeeding. So, um, first, first and most important thing to say is that we would encourage mothers to breastfeed. Um, so, yes, anti-epileptic drugs do transfer into the breast milk, but they also transfer across the placenta, the vast majority. So, a developing baby is exposed to anti-epileptic drugs for nine months. Um, and some people would argue that actually breastfeeding allows a child to wean off the anti-epileptic drugs as the doses reduce with the volume of milk increasing and then as you slowly wean off breast milk. It's a reasonable argument. Um, it's not known that anti-epileptic drugs in the breast milk cause any harm, that the quantities that cross into the baby are harmful in any way. Probably the only exception to that is very premature babies and lamotrigine, where the lamotrigine may not, the baby may not, the baby's liver may not be able to handle the lamotrigine. So that's probably the only kind of caveat in newborn babies. You need to think about whether the baby will be able to metabolise the drug. Um, and the only other thing to bear in mind is that uh, I must admit I haven't ever had anyone tell me this, but it, it's very well reported that um, the. Uh, babies don't like the flavour of the milk at certain times after taking the tablets. Is that something you've ever had? No. It, it's, it's said to be a common reason for babies refusing to feed at certain points relative to the timing of the tablet, which kind of makes sense. But um, um, but so it just might be worth considering if, if uh, mother is having trouble. Um, so I'm sure uh, all I'm sure lots of people are aware that. When you look at why breastfeeding is good, it seems to have, uh, it's predominantly an immune thing. Um, and there seems to be benefit for, depending on which study you read, somewhere between three, six, nine, and 12 months. Um, but it seems to reduce the likelihood of um, immune conditions. And on that basis, together with the bonding benefits of breastfeeding, it's encouraged if the mother wants to. I think that's the only thing we'd say. <coughs> um, 
the new babies? Quite interesting. I've, I've got two young children, um, and uh, I think it's fair to say that this doesn't really apply to brand new babies, but the older they get, the better they get at injuring themselves, and your job is to kind of stop them injuring themselves. Um, It's very hard to give complete safety advice to a new mother nursing a baby. Uh, it's very hard to remove all risk from looking after a brand new baby, irrespective of whether you've got epilepsy or not. Um, so the first 48 hours postnatally and the first few weeks with the amount of sleep deprivation that's commonly experienced are a highest, higher risk period for seizures. and we need. We need to accept that and build that into the routines that mothers develop. So things like changing on the floor, not on a table, um, uh, making sure bath time is done in a safe way, uh, making sure there are ways to feed a baby that you're supported, um, looking at ways you can carry baby upstairs and things like that. So there are lots of kind of just common sense things that, that we suggest mothers think about um, so as to minimise the risk to their newborn baby when they go home. Um, there's, there's nothing in that that uh, says mothers shouldn't be looking after their babies, they absolutely should. It's not sort of, we're not trying to say to people, uh, you have epilepsy, you shouldn't be caring for your child. We're just trying to say, how can we minimize those risks? Um, and there's nothing in there that a doctor should be telling you really, this is common sense, that, but we just ask people to think about it. Yeah. Okay, you'd be pleased to hear it's the last slide. Um, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, women's hormones change at the menopause. Um, I think this was the last slide I wrote last night. I can't like the pesky hormones, I think. <laughs> that may have reflected my state of mind at that point. Um, if you, the, there's a very good paper written by Leigh Sander. I brought this up at a meeting the other day. Did we say it wasn't Bolivia in the end? There's a cohort of patients who were uh, observed in the complete absence of anti-epileptic drug therapy because there just wasn't any in this population. And I think it was Bolivia, but I, perhaps I'm wrong. And uh, essentially, epilepsy gets better with age on average. If you take you know, a thousand people, their epilepsy gets better with age. Um, and generally speaking, with the exception of the period around the menopause, where the hormones can uh, oscillate a little, uh, the seizures do get better with age, and after the menopause things tend to settle. There can be a period where, particularly those women who've described oh, uh, seizures which reflect their hormone cycle, there may be a period where they get slightly worse around the menopause. Um, <clears throat> uh, but in general, the picture is of getting better around that time in life. Uh, HRT, most women have fewer seizures than HRT. People who've described seizures that were uh, dependent on their hormone cycle before may have more seizures, in fact. Um, and we should remember that HRT, like the combined oral conceptive pill, can lower the level of some anti-epileptic drugs, such as lamotrigine, in exactly the same way that the combined oral conceptive pill can. So, um, we certainly don't have concerns about women with epilepsy trying HRT, if they, if they tell us that they got worse on HRT, it's entirely believable. If they tell us it got better on HRT, it's entirely believable, um, which covers all the bases, really. Okay. So that's, um, that's a, a bit of a whistle-stop tour. So I, I appreciate I've covered an awful lot of things in that period. Um, <laughs> Uh, if, if there are any questions, I'll happily take them or we can uh, stop for a drink and then if you want to ask me questions during that period, what do you think? Um, does anybody have any um, mind questions? Um, has um, epilepsy, have, or rather, have emotions got anything to do with um, epilepsy? Yeah, well, in as much as we're not quite machines. Um, do you, so. I mean, there are lots of different ways to ask that question. So if you take, uh, if you look at a, a, um, someone's epilepsy for the course of their life, then you'll find the more stressful emotional periods of their life, they'll often have um, more 
seizures during those periods, but there's the reciprocal, which is that epilepsy can change mood, um, and so people can be more or less emotional in response to periods with their epilepsy. So it's kind of it's a two-way relationship. So we know that um, anxiety and depression, for example, are twice as common in people with epilepsy. Now that's whether that's a consequence of the effects of the epilepsy or a consequence of the chemical disorder that leads to the seizures, if you see what I mean, is very unclear. But, but you know, so it's, it's a very much a, a reciprocal relationship between emotions and seizures. That's generally for men and women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I take, I have to take lithium. And does that suppress emotions, would you say? Well, lithium's a mood stabiliser. Um, so the notion of lithium is that it removes the peaks and troughs. That's, that's why it's predominantly used. So um, uh, historically, it's been used for bipolar disorder as well as severe depression. Um, it wouldn't be considered the first line in epilepsy anymore. So uh, the the first line drugs are considered citalopram, mirtazapine, the, the ones you've all heard of, really, and those seem to be very effective in the majority of people. Lithium is very much considered slightly further down the line if required. But in the same way that certain anti-epileptic drugs are mood stabilizers, so sodium valproate, carbamazepine, these are mood stabilizing drugs that have historically been used in depression and bipolar mania. Is there any evidence that having children can permanently worsen a woman's epileptic condition. I asked because Pam had control hmm. prior to having children and lost it once she started having children. I've never read anything on those lines. Um, have you ever read anything on that? I think that... The children are hard, sorry, they're hard work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there are lots of aspects in that, aren't there? So, yes, so there's yes. these, it, it's, it's a time in your life, so it's an age in your life where things can change for other reasons. It's also a period in your life where uh, you are sleep deprived, you are, uh, you know, as I said, I've got a three-year-old, I've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and uh, I can't think the last time I had a completely undisturbed night's sleep as and I went to bed at the time I wanted to and I woke up at the time I wanted to. So either someone's come in half an hour before I want to wake up or someone's come in just so trying to go to sleep or, or the 3 a.m. You know, it, it's, it's much more complicated, isn't it, with children? So there's that. And then there's the sort of scientific part of it, which is, uh, have you heard of kindling? Kindling is something that's never been proven in humans, but it's shown to exist in uh, all animal species that's been studied in, including primates. And this is the notion that if you have seizures, you can strengthen the connections within synaptic networks, which promote seizures happening again within those networks. So it's the idea that seizures beget seizures. Yeah, does that make sense? So in a, in a let's say in a rat slice, you can induce a seizure and it means it's easier to induce the seizure the next time. You need a lower stimulus to induce the seizure. And that model is called kindling. It's the kindling model of epilepsy. So if in, uh, and it's never been proven in humans, so no one knows whether this actually happens in humans, but uh, you can imagine it would be a hard thing to study in human beings. Um, but I guess the question is, in your pregnancies, as you've said, was there a particularly bad patch that led to a change in your brain chemistry or your brain neuronal plasticity, which meant the seizures were more likely to come thereafter? That's the other part of the sort of equation which we, we don't fully know the answer to. I was a late starter on um, seizures, which was in my 50s. I was on HRT for 10 years. And as soon as I came off the HRT, fortnight after I had a seizure. Yeah. But they said they thought that was coincidence or? Yeah, they wouldn't, the doctors, to me, I'm convinced it was like a hormonal thing. Yeah. So I think it could have been that, the changes. Presumably, did you go back on HRT or? You wouldn't let me. No. I asked to go back on and <coughs> they said no. It's all about balancing risk, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So although I can understand why you'd want to go back on, I was fine on HRT. If you, if you then develop a breast tumour or something like that? I came off it because there was a report of breast um, yeah. cancer. 
So I stopped there and then. Instead of coming down, they stopped me just, just, just like that, yeah. The thing about women's hormones are though that you've had thousands of hormone cycles in your yeah. in your life where the hormones have gone up and down. Yeah. So the notion that two weeks after your HRT was something that your body hadn't experienced thousand times before yeah. is wrong, isn't it? Yeah. So I can't tell you why your epilepsy started. No. Statistically, it started because uh, of vascular changes. So anyone over the age of, a, well, it's said over the age of 60, but anyone with late onset epilepsy, 90% of it is due to vascular changes in the blood supply and uh, um, uh, focalized epilepsy that comes from that. But, <laughs> but, um, so after the menopause is sort of finished, quickly, uh, the, the seizures tend to get, get less. On average, the seizures get better with age, yeah. On average. On average. Now, this changeover in the excess of estrogen for the first half and the excess of progesterone, is it, mm -hmm. for the second half? Does that happen also in women after menopause? No. It was a one-word answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these hormones are still around, aren't they? But they, they're just not so active, is it? Not, not so much. No, I mean, not, not, not in nearly the same levels as during the menstrual cycle. And not in anywhere near the levels of pregnancy, which is why HRT is used after menopause. Um, You have been listening to a Bristol Epilepsy podcast. Find us online at www.bristolepilepsy.org.uk and follow us on Twitter. We are at Bristol Epilepsy.